you have your Bibles, join me in turning to the book of Revelation chapter 21. Revelation chapter 21. We're going to read together all of chapter 21 and the first five verses of chapter 22. We are only going to cover the first eight verses of chapter 21. Time we just will not permit our covering all of those verses. What I want you to see is the full picture that's being presented in these verses. A picture that is focused on the heaven that awaits us by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. We're going to talk for the next couple of Revelation sermons about heaven. And I hope to do so in a way that encourages, that creates perspective, perseverance, optimism as to the future, and settles our spirits with regards to what the future holds. I've made this observation a few times along the way. I think it is worthwhile to make again. I'm discovering after now nearly 20 years of ministry that there is a great deal of fear of death. There is a fair amount of fear of hell. But even among believers, I think, there is some trepidation about heaven. It is unknown. There is mystery there. The way we talk about heaven is often unhelpful. It's not terribly informative. I think most Christians understand heaven to be this sort of disembodied spiritual state, flying around like angels from cloud to cloud, playing harps, sitting around the throne singing from the Baptist hymnal for 10,000 years, right? I don't know that the way we talk about heaven creates a lot of enthusiasm or excitement, nor do I think the way we often talk about heaven is, is really reflective of the reality of heaven as presented in the Bible. I can remember being a fairly new believer and hearing someone in our country church make the comment, he is so heavenly minded, he's of no earthly good. Being struck by that a bit, wondering about that sentiment. Is that right? Is that true? Is that possible? What I want to contend this morning is that the more heavenly minded we stand to be, the better earthly good we may do. And I want to invite you to fix the gaze of your heart on heaven. And in doing so, find courage and encouragement, perspective and perseverance, comfort and hope. And may our fear, should there be any, of heaven and the mystery involved be allayed by our understanding what the Word of God truly says about the heaven that awaits us by faith in Jesus Christ. Revelation 21, we'll begin together in verse 1. If you found your way there, join me in standing as we read the Word of God together. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne, look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them, and they will be his people. God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief, crying, and pain will exist no longer because the previous things have passed away. And then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Right, because these words are faithful and true. 
And he said to me, it is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give water as a gift to the thirsty from the spring of life. The victor will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, unbelievers, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls filled with the seven last plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the lamb. He then carried me away in the spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a very precious stone, like a jasper stone, bright as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with 12 gates. Twelve angels were at the gates. The names of the 12 tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had 12 foundations, and the 12 names of the Lamb's 12 apostles were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with a rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. Then he measured its wall, 144 cubits according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure gold like clear glass. The foundations of the city were adorned with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation, jasper. The second, sapphire. The third, chalcedony. The fourth, emerald. The fifth, sardonyx. The sixth, carnelian. The seventh, chrysolite. The eighth, beryl. The ninth, topaz. The tenth, chrysoprase. The eleventh, jacinth. The twelfth, amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each individual gate was made of a single pearl. The broad street of the city was pure gold like transparent glass. I didn't see a sanctuary in it because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its sanctuary. The city doesn't need the sun or the moon to shine on it because God's glory illuminates it and its lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk in its light. The kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Each day its gates will never close because it will never be night there. They'll bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing profane will ever enter it. No one who does what is vile or false, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. And he showed me the river of living water, sparkling like crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, down the middle of the broad street of the city. The tree of life was on both sides of the river, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there'll, be, and there'll no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his slaves will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will no longer exist, and people will not need lamplight or sunlight, because the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. It is quite the picture, isn't it? Revelation 1.1 signals to us that what John is about to say, he's going to say in symbols and images. You read a passage like that. The idea is not to find some kind of spiritual significance in every 
somewhat vague image or symbol. We're not fishing through our passage trying to identify some significance to jasper, sapphire, chalcedony, emerald, etc. The idea here is, is to bask, to look, to behold, and to have that our hearts be moved by what is before us in this vision. Heaven as it's depicted in the pages of God's Word. I, I, I really think that John is just grasping at the grandest, most glorious things he can find to lay hold of to say, this is pretty outstanding. There are elements of heaven that I trust exceed our comprehension. There is a glory and a splendor assigned that we have no points of reference for. In the same way that it's difficult for us to understand the holiness of God, for which we have no point of reference, it's difficult for us to understand the splendor of heaven because, again, we have no point of reference. There is no one like our God, none to compare him with or to. And there is nothing like the heaven that awaits us, nothing to which we might compare. There is, however, much of heaven that we can understand. Much about heaven the Bible has given us to understand. We'll endeavor to do just that in the time we have together. Revelation 21 and verse number 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea no longer existed. Already in verse 1, there is room for debate. Scholars squabble as to what is intended by the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Is this the total destruction, the absolute annihilation and eradication of heaven and earth as we know it? Or is this the redemption of the creation as we know it? I would argue it is the latter. We have evidence in other passages in the Bible that God's intent is to redeem not just a people all his own, but the very creation itself. The book of Genesis gives us a tremendous amount of insight as to what heaven holds for us. You may not have considered that, but if you'll think back to Genesis 1 and 2, with the unfolding of God's creative work, at every step along the way, God determined, he decreed, it is good. And with the creation of mankind, God said, in fact, it is very good. What we have being restored is what was enjoyed until sin entered the world. The Bible begins in the Garden of Eden. The Bible will now end in the Garden of God. We have these signals all across the passage that we've just read that what John is describing is the reversal of the curse of Adam. In fact, as much is as said in chapter 22 in verse 3, there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city and his slaves will serve him. We have the reversal of the curse. When we think about the, the fall of Adam and Eve in the garden, we almost always think exclusively about the human experience. And in fact, the human experience was forever changed. 
When sin entered the world, death entered the world, and the course of human history was forever marked by Adam's sin. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, you remember that there is this clean versus unclean concept that's prevalent in the Old Testament. If something is unclean, uncleanness is transmissible. If you touch something unclean, you make that thing unclean. Even if something is regarded as holy or consecrated, if it is touched by the unclean, it is therefore contaminated by the unclean. Uncleanness is transmissible. What we have here at the second coming of Jesus is a righteousness that is so severe, so fierce, that it itself is transmissible. What had been contaminated by the sin of Adam in the garden is now consecrated by the fierce righteousness of Jesus upon his second coming. The very ground beneath our feet is infected by, it is polluted by, it is touched by the curse of Adam's sin. The very atmosphere above our head is impacted by the curse of Adam's sin. And though you and I may groan for, we may long for the fullness of our redemption. The Bible says that what is often happening beyond our ability to see or appreciate is that the very ground beneath our feet is groaning for its own redemption. Let me show you what I mean just quickly in Romans chapter 8. Verse 18 says, for I consider, this is a powerful verse, for I consider that the sufferings of the present age are not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed in us. For the creation eagerly waits with anticipation for God's sons to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in the hope that the creation itself will also be set free from the bondage of corruption into the glorious freedom of God's children. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together with labor pains until now. And not only that, but we ourselves who have the Spirit as the first fruits, we also groan within ourselves, eagerly waiting for adoption, the redemption of our bodies. At the second coming of Jesus, not only do we receive the fullness of our redemption, but all of creation, all of creation experiences the redeeming power of Christ's presence here on earth. A new heaven and a new earth is a radical renovation by resurrection power of the world as we now know it. So what I'm contending for along the way, and you've heard this a few times, is that our experience in heaven is going to be similar in many ways to our experience here on earth that creates a certain familiarity. Does that ease certain anxieties that you might have about the heavenly state? Now, just as there are similarities, we need to hold on to the reality that there is nothing about heaven that parallels our ex experience here because sin and death and pain and sorrow have been taken away. When you remove sin from our present experience, it fundamentally changes everything about our experience. But that's precisely the picture 
Revelation 21 and 22 are painting with regards to heaven. There's a new heaven and a new earth. The creation's groan has finally been answered by the redeeming God of heaven in the sending forth of his son in resurrection power and glory. John concludes the verse noting the sea no longer existed. If you like long days at the beach, weekends on the lake, fishing trip from time to time, you might at first be discouraged by this observation concerning heaven. But the point John is making is not to say there are no large bodies of water in heaven. In fact, the sea in apocalyptic writing is emblematic of evil often, but more times than not, it's symbolic of chaos and confusion and disorder. The sea no longer existed as a way of expressing that heaven is a place of perfect peace. This brings into light what Jesus does in Mark chapter 4. When sleeping in the boat, the disciples experience wind and wave tossing the boat. The sea grows tumultuous, Mark says. They awake, waken Jesus from his sleep. They say, Master, don't you care that we're perishing? And Jesus stands in the bow of that boat and says, peace, be still, and wind and wave is subdued. Where God shows up, order is brought into chaos. Confusion is resolved. And we see this in a variety of, of different ways. Even the creation act itself of Genesis chapter 1, the earth was without form and and void. The idea is that there is mass confusion and this mix of matter, as it were, and God separates the day from the night, the earth from the sea, the species among themselves. God is bringing order into the midst of chaos, even in the creation of the world as we know it. Jesus subdues chaos on the Sea of Galilee and brings order as wind and wave comes beneath his Lordship. What's being communicated in this uniquely apocalyptic way is that heaven is a peaceful place, free of the confusion and the chaos so characteristic of the world in which we live. Verse 2, John says, I also saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Now we sing of the New Jerusalem. As a place, we sing of the New Jerusalem or we speak of the New Jerusalem as this location we'll all live. Our address in heaven will be New Jerusalem. But I want to push at that a bit. I want to challenge your thoughts on this New Jerusalem just a bit. Turn over to verse number 9. Revelation 21.9. Here John records... The last sentence of verse 9, Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. He then carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God. Do you get it? New Jerusalem is not about a place. New Jerusalem is about a people. And when you begin to see that, everything about Revelation 21 begins to change. All of these magnificent and beautiful and majestic symbols and images that speak to, that, that, 
that bear witness to the beauty of that new Jerusalem. Do you know what it's describing? You and me in the resurrected state, coming with Jesus on the clouds of glory in great power. The new Jerusalem is not just a place, we're gonna be somewhere, but more importantly, it's a, it's a people. This is the very thing we have recited again and again in the Bible. He comes with his saints and his angels. He is coming on the clouds of glory. At the sounding of the trumpet, the dead in Christ are raised. And their, their, their bodies come with him. We are coming with Christ. In short, you and I are the new Jerusalem. The dead in Christ are the new Jerusalem. All of the beauty assigned in our mental bank to this geographic location is beauty that John, more importantly, Jesus, intends to be assigned to a people of every tongue and tribe and nation who have bowed the knee in their earthly life to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Isn't that, isn't that beautiful? Heaven is a place specifically prepared for those who have entrusted their soul to the Lord Jesus Christ. Verse three, John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity. He will live with them, they'll be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. God is with his people. This is what heaven looks like, God with his people. I continue to go back in, in my mind to that verse in Genesis 3. It's almost as though Moses includes this haphazardly. Before sin entered in, the Bible says God came in the cool of the day to walk in the midst of the garden, pursuing fellowship with Adam and with Eve. That's the kind of fellowship the curse of Adam disrupted. And that's the kind of fellowship the salvation of Jesus restores. That's what heaven holds for us. The presence of God in our midst. God will be with us and we will be with him. The story of mom and dad and a little boy driving along in a car and they're driving through Yellowstone Park and they're taking in all of the scenes and they're talking about this heavenly landscape that they're witnessing. They're just taken by what they see and the father says it's, it's like heaven and finally the little boy from the back seat speaks up the way little boys in the back seat often do and says but daddy jesus isn't there and the little boy gets what we so often miss the very thing that makes heaven heaven is that jesus is there i get questions frequently this is a common question how do we parse? How do we understand the various intermediate states? Jesus said, today you'll be with me in paradise. But John says there's a new heaven and a new earth. How do we distinguish between the two? The Bible speaks of Hades as the place of the dead, but the Bible speaks of a lake of fire and brimstone. And I get the value of making those distinctions, and I certainly want to understand all I can understand about what the future holds for mankind. It's it's, it's, a, it's a passion for me, but it's also kind of my job a little bit, you know, and 
So I want to understand all that. But, but here's what I'll say to you in as simple a terms as possible. We can reduce all this to this basic premise. Heaven is where Jesus is and hell is where he is not. And here the Bible promise us that, promises us that he is with us and that we will be with him. I think you can tell a lot about the condition of a person's heart, where the priorities are as they speak about heaven and what it holds. If you're, if you're anxious to get to heaven because you're going to play 24-hour golf, there are no end to hunting seasons, fishing and motorcycle riding, or maybe even a glad reunion with friends and loved ones that you've missed. Those, those are all good things, I suppose, but they pale in comparison to the physical, tangible, sensible presence of God in our midst. Behold, God's dwelling is with man. He will be with them, and they will be with him, and he will be their God. Verse 4, the Bible says, he'll wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will no longer exist. Grief and crying and pain will exist no more because the former things have passed away. In heaven, there is no sin, there is no suffering, there is no sickness, and there is no death. There are no hospitals, there are no funeral homes, there are no cemeteries in heaven for the former things have passed away. I, I think pointing to the fact that heaven does, the heavenly experience does have some similarity to our current earthly experience sort of helps the fear, the unknown to subside. In other words, my heart is settled at that notion. On the other hand, the idea of a sin-free, sickness-free, death-free existence, it sets my heart ablaze. Don't you look for and long for that? Can you see, are you connecting the dots in your mind between this radical sense of invincibility that seems to exude from those early disciples in the New Testament and the hope of resurrection. It's not just that God is going to bring them back in some far off distant place somewhere out in the future to some disembodied state, but that God will raise them up in the very street in which they stand by resurrection power where sickness and death and sorrow cannot touch them. There really ought to be this spirit, this sense of invincibility. We cannot be killed because of the power of the resurrection. Verse 5, John says, Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I'm making everything new. I don't know what it means to make everything. I don't know what that means for me. I don't know what that means for you. I got to imagine we'll, we'll be better looking when we're new will feel better, maybe we'll perform better athletically, physically. I don't, I don't know what all that entails. I just know that he's making all things new, and I'm glad he is. This is apparently important enough that he says to John, hey, right here, make sure you don't miss this. Write these words down, for they are faithful and true. 
I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. You understand Alpha is the first letter in the Greek alphabet, Omega is the last letter in the Greek alphabet. He's saying I'm it. I am the pre-existent one from which all other existence emanates. I am the beginning and I am the end, the Alpha and the Omega. He goes on to say, and this is such a sweet promise, I will give water as a gift to the thirsty from the spring of life. There's an invitation in verse 6 here to come and to drink deeply from the fountain of life. And the only prerequisite for drinking from the fountain of life is that you're thirsty. God in his magnificent grace comes along to salt the soul that we might thirst for the living God and offers us the fountain of life from which we may drink. We were talking about this. Sometimes things run together on me. I forget whether this was Wednesday night or last Sunday morning at some point along the way, but we were discussing the appetite, how our appetite is conditioned, how it changes over the course of time. If you are a sugar-free, soft drink drinker, and you go into the restaurant this afternoon and they bring you what I call a full-flavor drink, it will taste like molasses to you. If you are, however, a full-flavor drinker and they bring you out a diet drink, it will taste terrible. It'll almost make you spit it out on the spot. Drink one of those drinks over the course of time and your appetite, your palate begins to adapt to what you're drinking. Last Sunday morning, Miss Regina was telling me about Charles being in Uganda and the fruit was sweeter. And I sort of chuckled at that because the fruit is not sweeter in Uganda. He's just not eating American junk food. And so when you pick up a piece of fruit, it tastes sweeter. Our appetites are conditioned over time. You'll tend to want for more of what you consume. For some of you this morning, you have no desire to drink from the fountain of life because you have conditioned your appetite to the broken cisterns of this world. You keep going back and going back and going back in spite of their inability to quench the thirst of your soul. You go again and again and again. You continue to drink. Your soul never satisfied. But dear friend, if you'll come to the fountain of life, even when it may not suit your palate, you'll find a fountain of everlasting life flowing forth from your heart as this fountain of living water makes its way into the very marrow of your bones. Jesus is inviting us that we would drink deeply from the fountain of life. Come, he says, come. There's a sweet promise here. There are in all likelihood even believers saved by faith in Jesus Christ. And yet you've gone about conditioning your appetite toward the things of this world. And yet wonder why it is that God doesn't stir in your heart a thirst for the living God. D discipline dictates that the most important time to do the thing that must be done is when we don't want to do it the most. That's when it counts. And sometimes we must condition our appetite toward the things of God. Often, 
the very act of prayer and Bible study, worship, sacrificial giving. Sometimes these are the very actions that condition our appetite to desire to drink deeply from the fountain of life. Stop drinking from the broken cisterns of this world, believing they'll somehow satisfy or quench the thirst of your soul. Only Jesus can do it. But the good news is he's offered to do it freely, graciously, mercifully. Come, drink deeply. Verse 7, the Bible says the victor will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. This is the language of Revelation chapter 2 and 3. Do you remember it? To the one who overcomes. To the victor. To the victor. To the one who overcomes. Nearly every letter of those seven letters addresses the idea of victory in the face of temptation, overcoming in the face of great opposition. And with each charge, there is a promise, the crown of life, the bright and morning star seat at the table, victory in the end. In other words, Jesus is saying in Revelation chapter 2 and 3, any sacrifice you might make, the risking of life and limb for the glory of God and the advancement of the kingdom, even if it costs you everything in this life, you'll never regret because God will give it back and all the more in the resurrection of the dead. It's as though in Revelation 2 and 3, Jesus says, Serve me. Serve me sacrificially, and you'll never be sorry. Only to come back in Revelation 21 and see and say, see, I told you so. To the victor, he will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Now, up until this point in Revelation 21, everything has been, for the most part, positive. In verse 1, we have observed that heaven is a place of perfect peace. In verse 2, that heaven is a place specifically prepared for the church. In verse 3, that heaven is a place where God abides with his people. In verse 4, that heaven is a place from sin and sickness and sorrow and even death. In verse 5, heaven is a place where all things are new. In verse 6, heaven is a gift offered freely to those who come to Jesus. In verse 7, that heaven is an eternal home for those who overcome. And now, at least superficially, verse 8 seems to take a somewhat negative tone. But the cowards, unbelievers, vile, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. There's no denying that there's a certain negativity about what verse 8 says, but let's focus on the positive first. Even for for determined unrighteous people there is a, a gravitational draw toward the safety and the security that righteousness affords I, I say at home often i have spoiled my wife i have spoiled my children sometimes i say that in exasperation sometimes i say that as a point of pride but i think there's agreement in our home they are all spoiled my children could not survive in the neighborhood that I grew up in. They would never make it. They would call me to pick them up before the night was over, come get us. It would create panic for them. And even though my wife ha had much of the same experience I had, at least as a child and a teenager, 
she is way past that. And, and, and she, she has been pampered and conditioned to a lifestyle very much different than what she had as a child and even as a teenager. Last, we, we were in Nashville this weekend for a baseball tournament. They're on the way home from Nashville now, and I was settling them into a hotel before I left town late last night, came back to be here for services this morning. And it was fine. It was, uh, it was, it was fine. And, uh, but but th there were a few shady folks hanging around, you know, and, and uh, at one point I'm, I'm getting things in and to the room and, and my middle son goes, Dad, do you have a gun? <laughs> now listen, we're in Brentwood at the Hilton. <laughs> All over the country. There's, there's, there's movement. People are moving from major metropolitan areas into more rural areas and suburbs, trying to avoid the chaos and the confusion that has come to characterize many of our American cities in recent years. And what I wish, what, what I wish we could put together collectively in our hearts and minds is that you don't get to have your cake and eat it too. And if you bring the same unrighteousness, the same chaos and confusion in your heart, to your new geographic location, you will only get the same chaos and confusion. But even for those who are determined in their unrighteousness, there is a want for the safety and the security that prevailing righteousness affords. On the positive side, what verse 8 promises you and I is that heaven is a place that is free of all unrighteousness. You leave your doors unlocked in heaven. You leave your keys in your car in heaven. You don't look over your shoulder in the bad part of town as if there were a bad part of town in heaven. There's safety and security that comes with the all-prevailing righteousness that characterizes the new heaven and the new earth. Now, there's no overlooking the negative side of this reality. If unrighteousness has been purged of the new heaven and the new earth, it's the result of the unrighteous having been purged from the new heaven and the new earth. We, we tend to think of theological liberalism as something that is exclusive to the Northeast or the Northwest. It's those Yankees, right? But I have observed that even in the Bible Belt South, there is a creeping, cancerous, insidious universalism that has infected our culture and many of our churches. I have listened to more stomach-turning funeral sermons in my life than I ever want to hear, ever hoped to hear, when obviously, openly unregenerate people were spoken of as though their suffering had been brought to an end. They had drifted off to the sweet by and by, a better place, a better home for them. The most egregious example of this, I'll never forget this moment. I sat in the back of this funeral home chapel attending a funeral service. And I listened to a pastor get up and talk about how this person had gone to heaven and how this family loved each other so much. What was so interesting about that sermon is that I was sitting between the two deputies that had been assigned to that funeral to keep the family from killing each other before the service itself was over. You can have last rites read, 
We can say all the nice things you want to heard said. Preachers can lie over your casket. But the hard reality is that heaven is a place reserved for those who have been washed by the blood of the Lamb, who in faith and repentance have looked to the Father and pled for forgiveness that can only come through His Son, Jesus Christ. The awful underbelly we don't like to discuss when it comes to heaven is that there is an ulterior option. There is heaven. There is hell. We go to heaven by faith, through grace, the gift of our Lord Jesus Christ. One may go to hell deserving as a consequence of their own sin. This is the undeniable gospel reality. There's just two ways to go. It has been appointed unto man once to die and then the judgment. And on that day, the only safe place, the only place to hide against the wrath of God that is to come is in the body and behind the blood of Jesus Christ. The good news that is the gospel is that a place has been made. Now, all you need to come to Jesus this morning is a thirsty soul. And he's given permission that we may drink from the fountain of life. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the hope of heaven. God, I pray that you would help us to better understand what the future holds for us. Help us to better know the one who holds the future. God, I pray that you would stir the hearts of those who are here. God, I've, I've little doubt in a congregation of this size that there are those who are far from God. And maybe even those who are deluded, who have come under this cancerous, universalist understanding of the gospel. Help each one to see their unique and individual need for grace and mercy that can only be found in Jesus. Would you salt the souls of those who are gathered here that our our heart, our soul might thirst for God like the deer pants for the water brooks. May our souls long for you, the living God, our Lord. God, stir us by your spirit in just that way. May your son receive all the glory. Father, for the church, would you call us to repentance? Rebuke us, Lord, as we have often conditioned our appetite. We have wet our palate at the broken cisterns of this world. God, bring contrition and conviction and brokenness over sin and restore us, God. Lord, I pray that you would embolden us, that you would remind us of that overarching premise of revelation, that anything we might sacrifice or forego, even life and limb, we'll never dread. We'll be glad we did. We'll enjoy victory with your son, Jesus, eternally. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.